If you think about all of the historical facts, not one compares to the resurrection of Jesus. I would even say this, that if Jesus is risen from the dead, nothing else matters. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, nothing matters at all. Nothing matters at all. And so we celebrate today God's raising Jesus from the dead. And in His resurrection, we have resurrection. And in His life, we have life. And in His power, we have power. If you're visiting with us today, we are so glad that you are. If you would like a Bible, you're going to enter right into the study of Colossians that we are in, in Colossians chapter 2. If you would like a Bible, uh, we've got one that we want to give to you today. If you want to just slip your hand, if you'd like to study along with us in Colossians chapter 2. Mark, if you just see anybody that slips up their hand, then then great, you can hand them one. Um, If not, um, I would like for us now to bow our heads and our hearts and ask God for illumination as we open up His Scripture. Our Father, we come before you today excited. We are so excited about what you did through your Son, Jesus Christ, in raising Him from the dead. Because Lord, we know that in Him is life. And He is the light of men. And His light shines through the darkness. And even though the darkness tries to cloud out and drown out the light, it will not overcome it. And so today, Lord, as we open up your word, would you cause light to shine? And the fact is, Lord, the world is dark, as Phil said. Darkness seems to be the order of the day. Darkness proceeds from the world. Darkness proceeds from the government. Darkness proceeds from media. Darkness proceeds from entertainment. Darkness proceeds from education. Darkness proceeds from even our own flesh. And Lord, if we're not careful, we're going to fall victim to it. And so right now, would you shine the light of Christ to us? Please, right now, show us how gloriously beautiful Jesus is. Show us how wonderfully powerful Jesus is. Show us how He has defeated the darkness and in Him we can have true and everlasting light. We pray in His name. Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 8 through 15 this morning. In the Scriptures, it goes from Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. If you ever read the book of Ephesians, and then you read the book of Colossians, you find that they really read very similarly. And Paul addresses a lot of the same things in both books. Ephesians is a little longer, uh, Colossians is a little shorter, but we find wonderfully awesome gospel truths in both books. And so, Paul is writing from prison... And he's writing back to this church. This church is in a city called Colossae. And they are facing some false teachers who are trying to convince them, these Christians, that they need more than Jesus can offer. They need more than what Jesus has already given to them. And so in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul squarely addresses these false teachers and their false message. And he says... See to it 
that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And this is our text for today. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Now what if I were to tell you that I'm very excited about going to the mall this afternoon and purchasing for myself a pair of brown lace-up shoes, a nice pair of blue jeans, a light purple button-up shirt, and a navy blue blazer. If you were observant, you would say, Ryan, you already have all of that. You're wearing it. But if I were to say to you, no, apparently I must not, because the fashion police have already stopped me today and said that is exactly what I need. I need a pair of brown lace-ups and blue jeans and a light purple shirt and a navy blue coat. And But you would say, Ryan, look at what you're wearing. You already have all of that that they're telling you that you need. The message of the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae is that you're already wearing what people are saying that you need. They're, they're saying this. They're saying, you need spiritual fullness, Christian. You've got some emptiness. And Paul is saying to the church, you have the fullness of Jesus Christ. They're saying, listen, no, no, you need to be physically circumcised. And Paul is saying, you're not only physically circumcised, you're actually spiritually circumcised with the circumcision of Jesus Christ, which is much better, which is much more eternal, which is much more redemptive. They're saying, you need to follow man-made traditions. And Paul is saying, you follow the maker of heaven and earth. You follow the one who said, let there be light. How much more traditional can it get? They're saying you need to add some things to your life to get everything that you want out of life. And Paul is saying to the church, you have everything that you ever want and you have everything that you ever need in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, Paul is saying in verses 8 through 15, don't be taken captive by Christ belittling philosophies. Don't be taken captive by them. 
because Christ is better, He is bigger, He is more powerful, and He is more beautiful than any of those things that the false teachers are telling you that you need in addition to Jesus Christ. Now, two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus is bigger. If you look down at verses 9 and 10 of this text, you see that very clearly. It says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, the fullness of Godness dwells in Jesus Christ, and he is in you. He's bigger than what they have to offer. And then last week, they said, listen, listen, you you need to be physically circumcised, and and you need to do some more traditional things in order to have the fullness of Jesus. And and Paul, Paul is saying, listen, Jesus Christ has raised your dead life. And He has transformed your depraved heart. What more do you need than Him? And today we see that He's more powerful. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to look down at verses 13 to 15. If you've got your Bible, just keep your eyes glued to verses 13, 14, and 15. Because right now I'm going to give you the amplified, Ryan's amplified version of 13, 14, and 15 so that you can understand exactly what Paul is saying. So keep your eyes down on the text. This is what essentially Paul is saying. He's saying you were dead in your sins, both in the expression of your life and the condition of your heart. The life you lived was a living death. But now you're alive, truly alive in Christ, because God made you alive. How did he do that? He forgave you of all your sins through the permanent removal and punishment of the guilt of your sins on the cross. On top of that amazing reality, God disarmed, dismantled, and defeated the power of evil forces through the work of Jesus Christ so that you no longer have to be under their sinful authority and control. You're alive because Christ is in you and you have victory because Christ is in you. And so if you're a Christian today... I want, to show you, I want to show you four simple truths that are true about God and His work through Jesus Christ that should give you more confidence in Christ than you had before you walked in the building today. If you're not a Christian yet, I want to show you these four truths and I want you to see how they can be true in your life if you give your life to Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. So four truths about God that should give you Confidence in the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus. Truth number one is this. God values your life. God values your life. If you look down at verse 13, notice that Paul throws the direct object you. Y-O-U. He throws the direct object you at the very beginning of the statement. He doesn't say, and God made you alive together with him. And God made you alive together with him. And God made you alive together. That's not what he says. What does he say? And you, and you, God made alive together with him. Why does he do that? He wants to show you the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ has a very personal implication to your life. That's what he wants to do. He's saying, listen, church. I'm not just talking about theology here. I'm not just talking about wonderful doctrines and platitudes that we can go on and on about. And I'm not just talking about human life. I'm talking about your life. 
Listen, if Paul known every one of their names and he wanted to do this, he could have called them by name at this point. And the Holy Spirit would be doing the same thing right now. It would be, in essence, the Holy Spirit writing and saying, and you, Chris Heitch, God made you alive together with Christ. And you, Mark Holden, God made you alive together with Christ. And you, Joey Boyd, God made you alive in Jesus Christ. So the principle that we need to learn by Paul just unusually throwing this pronoun at the very beginning of the passage and saying, and you, is to say that the gospel is not only powerful, it is very personal. It is very personal. The gospel is so much more than a religious philosophy or a system of belief that we ascribe to. It is what God has done for you and in you through Jesus Christ. And I believe that we lose some of the power of the gospel when we lose the personal nature of it. And so I think this is what Paul would want us to understand. Paul would want us to understand that God made you. That God sustains you. That God sent His Son to planet Earth for you. That God condemned His Son on the cross for you. That God raised His Son from the dead for you. God is not against you. He's for you. God doesn't hate you. He loves you. God is for you. Now, the exhortation here would be, don't dare belittle God in your mind and in your heart because He has not belittled you in His mind and in His heart. I believe one of the ways that Satan seeks to trap us is by convincing us that we are insignificant. We are unimportant. We're irrelevant to the big scheme of the world and the big scheme of God. We we look at this big world with all of its billions of people and we look at the successful people, we look at the smart people, we look at the beautiful people, we look at the talented people, we look at the things that are being accomplished in this world, and then we look at little old me, and Satan comes in, and the world comes in, and our own flesh comes in and says, you know what, I'm just really not that important. I'm just not. And you know what happens? The more we tell ourselves that we're insignificant and unimportant, we then begin to say, you know, my life is not significant and it's not important. Therefore, my decisions are not significant and important. And we slide into a life of sin. We slide into a life of a minimalistic spiritual existence because we don't mean anything. And Paul would say, and the Holy Spirit would say, you are significant. God values your life. Therefore, embrace Him. Because he has embraced you through his son, Jesus. So truth number one is that God values your life. Truth number two is that God knows your history. Look back down at the text. God knows your history. Before you believed in the powerful working of God, you were spiritually dead. And that's true for every person who's a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian right now, if you've not embraced Christ, if you don't love Him, if you've not exchanged all that you are and all that you have for all that Christ is and all that Christ has, then then you're actually still in this state. But if you're a Christian, 
God knows that you were spiritually dead. Look how he expresses it. He says you were dead in two ways. Through the expression of your life and the condition of your heart. He says you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, in your natural condition, you were dead in your deeds, you were dead in your heart, and you were doomed to an eternity of death. You had bad fruit because you had a bad root, and that bad root was your heart. Now, I want to teach you a very important principle right now about humanity. All right? This is an important principle about humanity, and it is this, is that no one is as bad as they possibly can be. No one. Not even Hitler was as bad as he could be. No one does all the terrible things that they conceive of in their minds. No one rebels against God to the absolute fullest extent. But on the other hand, everyone is totally depraved. Everyone has a sinful heart. Apart from the active working of the grace of God in the human heart, every person is afflicted with the condition of spiritual death. Sin rules your heart. Sin rules your life. Sin rules your mind. You think bad. You want bad. You do bad. You act bad because you're totally depraved. If you picture God as the ultimate spiritual physician and you're in the examination room, God comes in and does a full spiritual examination of your life, and the diagnosis comes back for every single person in this building the exact same. Spiritually dead. Sinful condition. And so apart from Jesus Christ, your heart was deceitful. That's what... The Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, the heart is deceitful above all else. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Not only is your heart sinful, but your motives were sinful. Jesus was telling a crowd one day, he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. You see, your heart is bad and sinful and then therefore your motives are bad and sinful and then therefore your actions are bad and sinful. The Apostle Paul was telling the church at Galatia, he said, listen, the works of the flesh are evident. They are sexual immorality and impurity and idolatry and jealousy and fits of anger and all of these, essentially the same list that Jesus gave. And and Jesus was saying all of that comes from within and the motives of your heart. And now Paul is saying it's expressed through your life. And he says, no one who, who demonstrates these kinds of acts inherits the kingdom of God. Now, for a lot of us who grow up in a kind of a Christian home or a Christian environment, sometimes we have a hard time believing that those things are true for us. We we really, we don't think that our heart is that deceitful, we don't think that our motives are that sinful, and we don't think that our, our life is that sinful. But I want to tell you that before the active working of the grace of God in anybody's heart, I would say that even your best attempts at obedience and love were utterly sinful. 
Listen to what Paul told the Romans. He says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is going to shock some of you. But if you have an unbelieving husband and an unbelieving wife who marry and live together for 25 years and everything on the outside looks as if they really love love one another, care for one another, um, have affection for one another, make sacrifices for one another, and even though on the outside that looks good, and even in some ways the demonstrations are good, God looks upon that. And though while He might be pleased that there are sacrifices made, all of those things are utterly at its deepest root sinful. Why? Because none of them are done out of faith in Jesus Christ and a desire to see God glorified. So whatever your greatest attempts at love and obedience are apart from Christ, it is sinful. That's why you're totally depraved. Now listen, I've got to finish... I've got to wrap up the deal on that whole thing because the ultimate end of total depravity is death and condemnation. Paul says that the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9 says it is appointed for man once to die and after that to face the judgment. And then Jesus said this. He says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who can kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But fear Him who not only kills the body, but also has authority to cast into hell. He says the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I want to tell you about the gospel. The gospel cannot be good news until you understand the bad news of your total depravity, your utter sinfulness, and your ultimate doom apart from Jesus Christ because of your sinful nature. And what Paul is saying to the church, he's saying you were spiritually dead. In your heart condition and your life expression, this is the way you were. God knows your history. Now, if you're without Christ today, if you don't love Him and you don't live for Him and you've not expressed your faith in His death and in His resurrection, you are in that state today and you need to make that correction and you need to give your life to Him right here, right now. So God knows your history. Truth number three is because of truth number two. God transformed your existence. God transformed your existence. I know that's a bit of an odd statement, but that's exactly what he's saying. Look back down at Colossians 2, 13, 14, and 15. He says, God made you alive. You were dead, and God made you alive. You were dead in your sins and isolated from the life of God, and God made you alive, and now you're united with Jesus Christ. We talked about this truth last week. We chose Ezekiel 36 because what Paul is describing here is the same thing he's describing in 11 and 12, and that is that great truth of regeneration. That great truth of where God make, takes a dead person and makes them alive. And in Ezekiel 36, essentially, 
the Lord says, what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new life. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'm going to give you a new joy. And I'm going to give you a way to obey God joyfully for the rest of your life. And that is exactly what God has done. And that's exactly what Paul has said. God has made you alive. That's the big statement here. And that's why you should love Christ. That's why you should live for Christ. That's why you should give your life to Christ and say no to all of those suggestions that the false teachers are saying that you need to add to Jesus. Because none of those things that they're trying to woo you with can make you alive. None of those things can transform your dead heart and resurrect your dead life. Only Jesus Christ can do that. So give your life to Him. Now, how did He do that? Paul is answering the question right here. How did he make you alive? How did he cleanse you? How did he give you a new heart? How did he give you a new spirit? How did he give you a new love? How did he give you a new life? Look down at the text. He did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. And by doing that, he forgave you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. So let's unpack that a little bit right there. Let's unpack the statement that he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The record of debt. That is what would be called a certificate of indebtedness. A certificate of indebtedness. It was an official handwritten document which made a person obligated to fulfill whatever was written on it. Now, what Paul is implying here is that you and I each have a document that we have written. And on that document, we have said, God, you lovingly made me for your glory and praise. And I owe you unrestricted, unhindered worship for my entire life. That's what the document says. And then it says, I've not given that to you. And therefore, I am in debt. I am indebted to you. And I am guilty. And now I must be punished because I can't pay the debt. That's what the certificate of indebtedness says. You made me for your glory. You made me to worship you. I haven't worshipped you. I owe you, and I have no way to repay you. And so, the text says that he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And does anybody know what the demands were? Death. Condemnation. And what Paul says is that God canceled that record. God smeared it out. He blotted it away. He removed it. He expunged it. He wiped it off so that it was unable to be seen whatsoever. I was driving north from Jacksonville to Piedmont on, I think it was Tuesday of this week, going up to Piedmont High School to visit a coach, and I was listening to the radio And the guy on the radio began to tell a story about this Englishman, a very wealthy Englishman, who bought a Rolls Royce. 
And it was supposedly the finest automobile ever made. He paid lots and lots of money with it. The finest automobile ever made. Well, so he purchased it. And he ultimately was in Switzerland driving this Rolls Royce around, I assume in the Alps. And all of a sudden, the car has trouble and it has engine failure and it breaks down. And so the Englishman calls up Rolls Royce and says, this car that I paid, the nicest, best, supposedly best vehicle made, has broken down. It's on the side of the road. Rolls-Royce sent their best mechanic, flew him to Switzerland, fixed the car. The wealthy man said, thank you very much. He said, I'll be anticipating a bill. He didn't hear for anything for months. He made it back to England, never heard back from him, got no certificate of indebtedness in the mail, got no bill whatsoever. He finally called on the phone the Rolls-Royce company. And he said, you guys flew somebody out to Switzerland to fix my car. I was, a, I was a really, I was so thankful for that act. I need to pay you, and I'm willing to pay you whatever it costs. It had to be expensive. The customer service rep said, would you please hold for a moment, sir? Gone for a few minutes, came back to the phone. And the customer service said, sir, we have absolutely no record of anything ever happening to your car. God, through taking that certificate of indebtedness and putting it up on the cross above Jesus Christ, and it says, liar, thief, idolater, self-worshipper, all of those things that you are guilty of, God Himself is saying, I'm sorry, I have absolutely no record of your indebtedness. Hallelujah. What a Savior. If you would look down at the text again, he explains it a little further and he says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This phrase he set aside, it means he removed it. He he took it up. He He did something very specific with it. God didn't just throw the debt away. He didn't find the nearest trash can and ball the record of debt up and throw it away. No, He nailed it to the cross. Now we know that above Jesus was the inscription written what? The King of the Jews. The King of the Jews. Spiritually, spiritually, what was written was a record of debt that Jesus was actually having to pay. Spiritually speaking, and in the most fullest reality, Mike Diggs, what was up above Jesus that day was every sin that you've ever committed. It's every sin that you're guilty of in the present, and it's every sin that you'll ever commit in the future. It was all written on a spiritual scroll above the head of Jesus. God took it away that day by condemning His Son instead of you. And so when Pilate and the Roman soldiers and all of the Jewish leaders had a hand in nailing Jesus Christ to the cross, God was nailing your debt to the cross at the same time. 
And then look down. Because of all that, He forgave you of all your sins. You know what forgiveness is? In its most simplest sense, forgiveness is the cancellation of a debt. Forgiveness is the cancellation of a debt. And this is what Paul says. Every single debt that you owe to God has been canceled. It's been removed. It's been expunged. It's been blotted away. You are no longer guilty in the eyes of God. Praise Him. Praise Him. So, truth number three is that God transformed your existence. He's made you alive by removing the certificate of indebtedness that was against you by nailing it to the cross. And truth number four is that God conquered your enemies. God conquered your enemies. I'll read verse 15 again. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Keep your eyes down there. It says He disarmed, which literally means He disrobed. He stripped the rulers and authorities of all of their power and all of their authority. He stripped them down, all of their ammunition, all of the arsenal of their evilness. All that They decorated themselves as really great and really wonderful. Jesus disarmed them of all of that. Now, these rulers and authorities, the chief is Satan. His... His army are the demons, but right in line with them is the world and also your sinful flesh. All of that falls underneath the rule and reign of the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan himself. And Paul is saying that God has disarmed, has disrobed, has stripped them of their power. And look at what else he says. Not only has he stripped them down where they are are no longer as powerful as they once were. He says he's put them to open shame. Now this this phrase literally means to make a public show or spectacle. As the Romans did when they exposed their captives and the spoils of the conquered enemies to public view in their triumphal processions. Now it's the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. But when Paul uses this phrase that he put them to open shame, and he combines it with the next phrase. Look, by triumphing over them in him, which means a, a military victorious conquest in which, in which an army general would put behind him those whom he has conquered and parade through the home city so that everyone would come out and, and look at their general and their leader and how he conquered yet another land and yet another people. The the picture that Paul is trying to get us to understand is that at the cross, not only did Jesus accomplish your forgiveness, not only did He accomplish your justification, your declaration of righteousness, but for the rest of your life, Jesus accomplished victory over sin and Satan and death and hell, and demons, and yes, even your own flesh. Because the picture is this, is that at the cross, and ultimately through the resurrection as it's demonstrating, 
Jesus Christ is the victorious general who takes the devil and his demons and his minions and strips them down and puts them in open shame and ties them behind the victorious chariot um, of, of him and walks through essentially the streets of heaven and is proclaiming victory over all of those forces. And because of that, you can walk in victory over sin today. God conquers your enemies through what he accomplished on the cross. That's truth number four. And so God values your life. God knows your history. God transformed your existence. And he conquered your enemies. Now, I think all of that is to say, do not run away from Christ. Run to him. Do not belittle Christ in your mind and in your heart, but rather look at Christ as big and beautiful and glorious and better than anything that the world has to offer you. I mean, run to Him in prayer. Run to Him as you read Scripture. Run to Him in the community of believers. Run to Him in your family. Run to Him in all that you do and in all that you think so that you can have all that Christ has, has predestined for you to have in Him. If you have your Bibles open still, I want you to look up at verses 6 and 7, the two verses that led into this section. Because Paul has given us the instruction before he has given us the reasoning behind the the instruction, look at verse 6 and 7. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As you received Him, walk in Him. As you received Him, walk in Him. And so, you know what, guys? Today, right now, it doesn't really matter in this sense whether or not you're a Christian or whether or not you're a non-Christian because the instruction is the same. Receive Jesus Christ if you're not a Christian. Walk in Jesus Christ in the same way that you received Him if you are a Christian. Hear the message of Christ. Understand it. Believe it. Repent of your sins and walk in the liberating freedom of all that Christ has done by disarming and disrobing and dismantling and defeating the forces of evil that come against you. I want to just give you really just three quick statements here that I think will be an encouragement to you based upon this truth. The first thing that I want to tell you, believer, you are new. You are a new creation. You are absolutely new. You have a new birth. You have a new Lord. You have a new heart. You have a new mind. You have a new love. You have new desires. You have a new community. You have new power. You have new freedom. And you have an entirely new life. I'm reading in a book this week. And this young woman gave her testimony. And I just want to read it to you because I believe you could resonate with, with it in some way. Hannah grew up in a Christian home. Her dad was a worship pastor. And like many pastor's kids, she was heavily involved in church. But after a fallout with the lead pastor at the church in which she grew up, her parents stopped going to church during her high school years. 
This drastic change, coupled with the fact that Hannah's parents wanted her to have her own faith and didn't, as she puts it, force any theology or basic knowledge of Christianity, this left Hannah struggling to find her identity during her formative teen and college years. She says, I found my identity in boys and my worth when they worshipped my body. I struggled with sexual acts but believed Satan's lie that it wasn't a big deal. I didn't bear the mark of a Christian. My faith was conditional and repentance was minimal. Her junior year in college, God brought Hannah to church and began a long and difficult process of pulling back the layers of her identity. I heard for the first time that I was a sinner. I grew up understanding God's love for me and that Jesus was a really incredible God, but the gospel of what Jesus Christ had done for me was never clearly said. God opened my eyes and revealed to me the truth, and I saw for the first time what I had done to Jesus. I was a wretched sinner. Now, this is important. For nine months, Hannah wrestled, confessed, repented, and surrendered her sin to Jesus. She says, My pride was humiliated, my foundation was crumbled, and my idols were cast down. I saw myself as a prostitute and sexually impure, but this is where the devil had a hold on me. I forgot the good news that we are sinners, and through Jesus there is no condemnation but grace. Hannah had switched from an identity in body image and boys to an identity as a condemned sinner, both of which were lies of the enemy. For months, she struggled with feelings of guilt and inadequacy. But during her senior year, while attending a college conference, the Holy Spirit used a pastor's prayer to speak truth in her life. Hannah says he was transparent in his prayers. First, he listed off why he was unworthy, stating his most intimate sins. And then he proclaimed the truth of God's grace. And for Hannah, something clicked that night. And she fully understood the whole gospel story. She wasn't just a sinner condemned by God. She was once a sinner, now saved by grace and made new in Christ as a child of God. And this is her testimony. God's grace was a revelation for me. The Holy Spirit filled me up. And I clearly felt His love and saw that I am adopted as His daughter, reconciled and a part of the family of the church. Most important, through the power of Christ, I am victorious over sin, Satan, and death. I am freed from my sins. I have never felt so liberated in my life. My bondage from sin was broken. And the enemy cannot condemn me because I was set free through Jesus Christ and His redemptive act. This is the good news. All my sin went to Jesus as my substitute because I deserve that death. But He paid my penalty, then gifted me His righteousness. That is undeserved, unearned grace. I don't know anything that demonstrates the truth of Colossians 2 verses 13, 14, and 15, than that testimony right there. And I want to ask you right now, every one of you, do you have that testimony? Do you have that testimony? Because either you are swimming in your sin of spiritual death, where your heart and your motives and your actions and even your best deeds 
are depraved and they're not worth anything to God, or, or you're over here and you know that you're sinful, you know that what you're doing is wrong, and all you do is feel condemnation. Neither one of those things is what God has sent His Son to accomplish. You have to be right here where you say, yes, I was dead in my sins. Yes, I was a condemned sinner. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross, I now am liberated. I am freed. I am a recipient of grace. I have Jesus forevermore. The relationship between the cross and the resurrection is that the debt was paid on the cross and the demonstration of that payment is Jesus is alive. He's alive. That He is the visible, physical demonstration that a a debt has been paid. And so if you've not given your life to Jesus Christ who has paid your debt and demonstrated that payment by rising from the dead, I want to give you that opportunity today.